So uh, I, when I went there, they knew nothing about the Druze, nothing. So they had in mind to have in Israel two samples. One is Jewish sample and the other they would call it Arab. But then came Sausan and said, hey, you can't just call the Arabs Arabs and specifically in Israel because uh, we're dealing with religion and there are huge differences between different communities in terms of involvement in the Israeli society, serving in the IDF. And the Druze is a totally different topic. And they said, like, what is Druze? And, I, and then I told them. And then they said, okay, you know what? Then let's focus on Muslims and Druze. Hi there. Welcome to the podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa, in which your host and PhD candidate, Dani, chats with early career researchers about their academic journey in the hope to hear about some PhD life hacks. Today's guest is Sausam Geer, who is from a Druze village in the Western Galilee and currently doing a double PhD at the University of Haifa and Abo Academy University in Finland. Her doctoral dissertation focuses on contemporary negotiations of modernization in the value profiles and religiosity among young adult Druze and Muslim students in Israel. But before going into Sausan's bio, I want to let you know that our podcast also has a Twitter, Instagram and Facebook account where you get to learn more about our upcoming guests. And we also have a YouTube channel and blog on our website where you'll find tips by and for peers ranging from topics like publish or perish to studying abroad. So connect with us and don't forget to subscribe. All right, let's get back to Sausen Geer. Sausen holds a BA, cum laude, and MA in psychology from the University of Haifa. Already during her MA, Sausen started working as an educational psychologist at the municipality of Haifa. Upon completion of the MA, she started her PhD studies but unfortunately had to stop after only one semester as she was involved in a serious car accident while she was pregnant. It took time to recover, but Sausan returned to research when she was ready and later on even decided to quit her job and devote all her time to the research. Her research proposal was accepted by both the Department of Psychology at the University of Haifa in Israel and the Study of Religions at Abo Academy University in Finland. For her research, Sausan has received a PhD Distinction Scholarship from the University of Haifa, the Leftzion Scholarship for Outstanding Doctoral Students from the Periphery of the State of Israel, and she has won the Competitive Abo Academy University Outstanding Doctoral Students Research Grant three years in a row, which included a six-month relocation to Finland with her two daughters. Sausan has published articles on religiosity of Druze and Muslims, including in the use of internet and social media, and currently leads a research project focusing on the relations between meaning-making processes, well-being, and sense of agency during the pandemic. Sausan volunteers as a lecturer in student forums, mostly on ways to deal effectively with exam anxiety and pursuing personal goals, especially as minority students. She also talks about the combination of career or academy and motherhood at women forums as women empowerment is close to her heart. So welcome to our podcast, Sausan. I'm glad that you could join us today. How are you doing? Hi, Danny. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm also good and very glad to hear more about your story. But before I'm going to ask you a few questions... 
I'm going to pour myself my traditional amaretto. What are you having today? Well, I'm having mate. Oh, tell me more about that. Well, um, mate, it's, it has an interesting story. Mate, mate is um, sort of a herb tea that uh, people drink mainly in South America, uh, mainly, actually, majorly in Argentina. And it is, it became sort of a traditional drink among the Druze in Middle East. It's identified with the Druze. And um, I was thinking the other day, how come, like, how did it come from Argentina or South uh, America to the to the Middle East? And I think that it's up, it's it re, it's related that many uh, Syrian Druze uh, actually immigrated to South America during uh, like the last decades or like uh, many time ago, and then when they came back home, they brought the mate with them. So if you go to the Golan Heights or to, or to Syria mainly, uh, people drink the mate, and there are like traditions of drinking mate. Uh, they they pour it into special cups with a, a, a special way of drinking, but I prefer drinking it as a herbs tea, so I'm having mate with me. It sounds good, and, and a very interesting story. I have heard about the drink, uh, originating from Argentina, as I know some people from there, and uh, they're always looking for it to buy it somewhere close to here, which I've heard is not easy. Um, but yeah, that's very interesting. Maybe they should visit the Druze village and, and find it there. Yeah, I think so too. And it's really funny because like it's really identified with the Druze. So I was watching this Lebanese uh, uh, program one day, and they were laughing about the Druze, like sort of you know <laughs> uh, kidding with with the Druze about the the customs of drinking mate. So. Uh, yeah, it has an interesting story. And many people don't like it, by the way. It's sore. For, like, if okay. you drink it for the first time, you won't like it. But then you become addicted. Maybe a bit like coffee then. Yeah, it, 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 it has uh, high levels of caffeine. And I know that uh, like pregnant women are not allowed to drink mate. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, now we're all settled with our drinks. I like the little umbrella that's in your drink. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. I think I'm all set to start asking you a few short questions. Are you ready? I am. Great. The first question is, what is your favorite part about your morning routine? I hate mornings. <laughs> I don't think I have a favorite part, but if to think about it, I think it's the part when the girls are out, like their dad took them to school, and I'm finally like can calm down with making things in time. So I just sit and relax and drink my coffee. This is like the, the good part in it <laughs> but I'm not a morning type I hate mornings the quiet moment in the morning is the best then for you exactly 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 when I'm like ah uh, you know with all the stress like the the part where you calm down like you you got everything done mm -hmm. and talking about your daughters I wanted to ask you what is their favorite movie their favorite movie oh well there are plenty of them but my uh, younger one, Mulan, is named after Mulan, the movie. Oh, that's She's nice. two years old, so you can guess <laughs> what's the favorite one. But here's Mulan's favorite one is Moana nowadays. Right, that's with the Hawaiian, uh, the Pacific Ocean uh, yeah. culture thing, that they're on the island, and yeah, yeah. Exactly. I've heard about that one too. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's really nice. I like the name Mulan. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, well, I chose it for a purpose, you know. Uh, besides loving the movie, I raised my daughters to be fighters. 
Like, you know, I don't let them just watch the Barbies and all the, you know, the girly shows. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not uh, my thing. Uh, I, I love, I want them to watch Dora, to watch Moana, the, girls who, uh, the girl who has the power to uh, interact with her environment and make a change. Uh, and this is what Mulan is about. She's a girl who, like, was forbidden to do things, and when she'd done them, she'd done them even better than men. So Girl power. Uh, that's for a purpose. Yeah, exactly, girl Very power. Very nice. I have one more short question before we dig into your academic journey, and that is, what skill do you think is essential for any PhD student to have? Patience. Oh, that was an easy one <laughs> Lots then. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Uh, it's it's not exactly a skill, but yeah, I think it's something that is most needed because the journey can be really difficult and you're going to be fe- facing many difficulties, especially especially if you're a mom. Uh, so you need lots and lots of patience. Mm. Thanks for the tip. You're welcome. And I, I would add also one more thing, uh, good networking, because you're going to need lots of help throughout your journey. It's actually very important, the networking, because you don't have to reinvent the wheel yourself all over again you can also connect with peers or with people who are uh, more experienced so that you can learn from them and and get a little bit of help you don't have to do everything alone so networking is very important yes indeed very much so now we have we got to know you a little bit better (laughs) let's get started with your phd journey and what you're doing in academia right now Mm -hmm. and let me start with uh, saying that you did your PhD right after finishing the BA and the MA in psychology. But what made you choose to pursue a doctoral degree? Hmm. Uh, well, I love the academia. I love research. I just love to discover things. Anything that challenges my brains, I really love it. So my, like, you know, becoming a psychologist once used to be like the largest dream ever, like the dream of my life thing. But then when I started working as a psychologist, something was still missing. And I was still re- working as a, as a teaching assistant for a statistics courses. And, like, I loved the academia. When I came to the university, I, it felt like I'm breathing again. Like, wow, home sweet home, something like that. So uh, I think it's like, um, I don't know, because it's something dynamic. It makes you think. Uh, you meet people, you learn stuff, and you see that your work is affecting uh, society, like, you know, discovering stuff. I'm a very curious person. Okay, so it wasn't your original dream to go into academia, because you wanted to be, as you said, a psychologist before that. But these things can change, and you also have to discover what's out there before you know, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, you faced some serious obstacles at your first try to do a PhD. I was already eight months uh, pregnant. I was expecting, uh, uh, like, to. I was expecting uh, giving birth, uh, and I'm like in a month, and then all of a sudden this uh, car accident was really serious, and uh, like I, I really badly injured my knee, uh, and I couldn't walk. And it was really very difficult period because this was my first child. I was very enthusiastic about becoming a mom, finally. And um, suddenly I can't walk. 
and I gave birth and I like it was really difficult also to uh, like you know during the process of giving birth but also afterwards in terms of not being able to walk without any assistance and not being able to hold her in my hands and then all the thinking about the 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 like that my life should stop right now like because I can't walk and I have a child to uh, rear and like it's really difficult and uh, I was in a down. Now, if I take a look back on myself then, I believe that I was sort of in sort of a depression, postpartum depression, but like no one and even me didn't notice it. Like they felt that I'm in a down, but uh, like I didn't get any therapy or something. I was basically um, uh, learning sort of to walk on my uh, leg again. But after a year that I felt that that's it, it's enough. Because all the, all this time, by the way, I was feeling like I'm gonna be working on my PhD. Like in a month, I'll be I'll be okay, and I'll get back to uh, research, and I'll get back to do what I, I'm supposed to do now. Although everybody was really like super uh, 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 supportive, like also in terms of the university uh, here at the University of Haifa, they were all supportive and understanding and take your time and everything. But no, I felt really uh, bad about myself. But then I remember that one day I decided that there was this lecture, uh, Dr. Karen Orchen, uh, who was my uh, teacher for statistics uh, during my bachelor's. And I remember that she was a powerful woman. And for some reason, reason, something inside of me said you should talk to her. I don't know why. So I came to the university that day, and I remember uh, like okay. we booked a meeting, and I came. And when I just like sort of stepped into the campus it was like you know like i'm breathing again like wow i miss this place oh my god life life you know <laughs> and then and then we spoke and she said like what's the problem and i was also by the way dealing since i was home with my uh with julian who's my older one i was with her all time so i sort of started having this phobia of leaving here um, I'm a bad mom if I go back to work now. She's oh, like so thanks. tiny and like even mm -hmm. though she she was all, almost uh, a one year old, uh, like yeah, it was eight uh, plus months, and um, she was uh, no even more I think yeah she was more like a year and something and I felt still bad bad like no I shouldn't leave her alone now it's not the time to put her somewhere with someone else, and then she said no like she was like you know this voice this uh um strict uh harsh but positive voice saying you should go you should get back you can do it you will do it and then she offered me and she said uh, you're good at statistics right and i said yes and she said you love teaching and i said yeah well i was uh, a teaching assistant during my master for a statistics course and she says well i have a job for you you can come and be my teaching assistant now and I started teaching with her actually statistics, okay. and this is how I came back to the university. So I owe her a lot, uh, and um, it was really difficult. But, you know, once I stepped in, after this uh, long break, it felt like really good. It was difficult at the beginning, because like, where am I going to start from now? Because also, by the way, when I got back, uh, the topic that I was writing about was irrelevant was it like it, 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 it just you know someone else wrote about it so I had to start everything from the beginning oh so you came back finally and then you still had to change everything you originally planned to do exactly yes 
Exactly. Totally a new topic. And this was also very difficult because I felt like, you know, all the, the, the like, you know, the, the voices saying, oh my God, how am I going to do it now? How am I going to do it now? But then I said, like, you have no other option. That's a situation. It's bad. It sucks. Mm-hmm. I would have preferred that it would have been something else or look differently, but still, I'm going to do it. Great. Sounds like a very powerful woman to me. Okay, so you had your daughter. You went back to the PhD, even though a lot in it had changed. Um, And I understand that you still had a job, right? As an educational psychologist for the municipality of Haifa. So with me right now, I'm only doing the PhD. I don't have any children. Uh, I don't have a, a job on the side at the moment, also related to the pandemic and things like that. And even just having a PhD has me struggle at times. So I wanted to ask you how you managed to juggle all of those things, all of those roles. So when I came back to work, it was really difficult because I also like sort of uh, came back to life again. So I came back to the PhD, totally new PhD. I came back to work and I'm a mother. So everything has changed. My world has like, you know, turned upside down all of a sudden. And it was really difficult emotionally. And... uh mainly, by the way, it was the the motherhood that was like, you know, all the time, like sort of uh, scratching me uh, inside uh, that like, oh, I'm I'm very much into work right now, the PhD and the the, um, work as a psychologist. Uh, And then I knew that I have like to, to do it in a different way next year, because I'm already into everything back. So I can't just, you know, after starting, after uh, a leave of, of almost a year and a half, come and say, uh, I'm going to be stopping this or that or that. So I said, I'll do it next year. Um, and it was obvious for me that it's not going to be my PhD because this was like, you know, my oxygen. This was like, this is life. This is what I love the most. So I said, like, I either I'm going to be quitting my job as a psychologist or that I'm going to be uh, working less. But then all of a sudden... Uh, I remember it was uh, one day uh, that I came back from uh, work as a psychologist, like from the school where I worked, and uh, I opened my email and I received this email saying, hi, Salsan, you don't know me. My name is Dr. Norik Novis Deutsch, and uh, I received your name with a recommendation from the uh, School of Psychological Sciences at the, Department, uh, at the University of Haifa. Um, uh, I was looking, I am looking for a research assistant to work in an international research project. Uh, speaking Arabic, uh, English, and Hebrew fluently, and they gave me your name with a, like, you know, good recommendation. And I was thinking if you want to work as a research assistant, and it was June, by the way. Um, wow. Uh, it was almost the end of the year where I decided, like, the point that I was thinking, what am I going to do? And she was like sort of trying to tempt me to join this project by saying, well, the, uh, it includes a travel to Finland to learn about the research and the methodology. Uh, all experiences are prepaid by the project manager um, for, for 10 days. And I was like, up to this uh, uh, line saying that uh, we're going to be, that there's a travel included, uh, you're going to be traveling. Uh, the wow. temptation is actually what scared me the bo- most. I said, ah, and then I closed my laptop because uh, it was such a huge compliment for me to work as, um, like, that I received such a job offer. Definitely. That doesn't happen a lot, that someone is reaching out to you instead of the other way around, right? So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. 
uh, it was like really, I was like, wow, I felt really great. But then I was like, and like, this is academia. This is what I want. Oh my God. But then when I re- read this, this bottom line that you're going to be traveling to Finland, I was like, ah, oh, nah. And then I closed my, closed my laptop. Because I'm coming from a Jewish family. Jews is a very religious and conservative community. Uh, my mom is religious. My father is not, but still, he's more traditional even than my mom. And I was thinking that no way that my family would allow such a thing. Oh. Traveling alone abroad, like, no way. Um, and, you know, um, uh, like, I don't know. I, I It's a long story, but then, like, you know, uh, I, I went to my parents' house, and, like, my husband came uh, back from work at the evening, and he says, um, uh, I said, well, look, I received this job offer today, and he says, wow, like, why don't you travel? This is what you want. This is academia, and I was like, are you serious? I'm going to be traveling alone, and Julian, she was already two years old. old, Yeah, and he said, like, yeah, well, why don't you, why not? Nice. And I said, really? Would you leave her with you? And he says, yes. And then I went to my parents' home, and I, I, my, I remember that we were sitting in the living room, and my father was there and was saying, hey, mom, I'm, I'm going to be traveling to Finland uh, to work on a research project, and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And my father, like, said nothing. Mm. I was, mom, did father hear me? You know, like this. Did he hear it? And she said, yes, I think so. Yeah, and it was, it was really nice. Like, my father actually supported. I was scared uh, that he's going to be saying no. Oh. But then he he supported it, and yeah, and then I started my journey with the yard with the young adults and religion and global perspective and all the connection with Finland. That's really great. It's so important that you have family and friends supporting the choices you make and the chances and opportunities you get because you could still try and do it without their consent, but it would make everything just so much harder. Yeah, definitely. So that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, it is specifically among conservative communities such as the Druze, it, it's not, like you said, you can do it without their consent. No, it's not possible in my community. It's like impossible, sort of, without any support. So it sounds like you're saying about your own family that they're a little bit um, special in that way, that they were so supportive and, and having you try all of these new things, even though it was job-related and, and definitely something very important for you to do uh, and a very amazing opportunity. But... Um, what would you tell others um, who belong to minority groups or especially female students who are facing similar things? If they get an opportunity that might be conferencing abroad or traveling to a different city or going to different offices that might not be that known to the people in, that are within their groups, how could they overcome those struggles? What could they say to their families to trying to convince them that this is what they're supposed to be doing well first of all you have to want it eagerly very much eagerly and believe in yourself that you want it that much because then like you're gonna you're gonna put so much effort you know into this I think that first of all, like I'm, I'm really shocked all the time of like the, 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 you know, discrepancy between how I right. thought my father would respond and how he actually responded. And uh, so, first of all, I would say before building, you know, thoughts and that this is not going to be easy, etc., etc., try, try to do it. 
Like, you know, try, try a chance. Go to your family and say, I have this and that. Maybe you will be surprised that they will approve it. Because, by the way, nowadays it's much, much more acceptable. Because afterward, like, you know, modernization process is really taking place very, very uh, rapidly all the time. Society and specifically conservative communities and uh, religious societies are changing rapidly. Um, and I think that many times we, like, you know, like... I remember that right then it was like something, you know, exclusive that I'm traveling abroad alone for 10 days. But hey, like this was, uh, I traveled during October 2015. And during 2016, I traveled wow. abroad alone for six times for different conferences. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And then it became like sort of a habit. So still, there are families that won't accept or support that their daughters might travel alone. But first of all, you should believe in it. You would, you should want it very much from inside of you. And then you should try, like tell them, go, say. And then if they say no, first of all, try to talk by yourself. And if it doesn't work, then maybe you can bring people or, you know, use the help of others, outsiders, either, if it's either your lecturer who might tell them that we're going to be doing this and that, um, she's going to be with me or something like that. Or, I don't know, you can call me as well. I can tell your parents that this is totally fine. Uh, like, you know, bring them proofs that mm -hmm. this is okay. And I think it's much easier nowadays anyway. And I think that also brings us back to uh, your research. Because um, if I understand correctly, uh, the, uh, the really religiosity, I'm saying it again, uh, of, of Druze and, and Muslims, especially young students um, is your research topic, right? So tell me a bit more about the dissertation you are working on. Ooh-ha! <laughs> well, that's also another story. <laughs> well, um, my story is really complicated from, like, and no matter what, which uh, um, perspective you take, it's really complicated. Because when I started, like, I was writing, when I traveled to Finland, I was writing, I almost had a proposal, PhD proposal, well, if you remember, I came back mm -hmm. after the car accident. I started a new topic. So when I traveled to Finland, I was writing about a competitive victimhood and social something some some topic in social psychology that I learned from the bottom. Like I had no clue about it, and I almost had a proposal, like almost done and finished. Uh, and then I received this offer: Hey, come and write about the Yark, the Young Adults and Religion in a Global Perspective Research Project. Why don't you put what you wrote on, like, on, on shelf and come and write this about our research as a double uh, program PhD? So, uh, like, you know, I started all over again from the beginning. Wow. For the third time. Then. Yeah, third time. And very importantly, and this is super important, I had ever, never before related or wrote or read anything about religious studies. Religion is not my topic. Just to remind you, I'm an educational psychologist. My master's was also in okay. uh, intercultural relations, mm -hmm. but religion, no. Okay. So like I was starting a new topic from the beginning, from the zero, but it was fascinating because the YARG, it's, uh, well, as I said, young adults and religion in a global perspective. This is a Finnish research project that was uh, implemented in 13 countries worldwide across five continents. Uh, and its uh, uh, research questions are based on the fact that uh, many changes are uh, in terms of religiosities and values are taking place around the globe. 
and they uh, are focusing on the young adults specifically, mainly because uh, the young adults today are the first uh, generation to grow up into the digital culture. Right. So uh, I, when I went there, they knew nothing about the Druze, nothing. So they had in mind to have in Israel two samples. One is Jewish sample, and the other they would call it Arab. But then came Sausan and said, hey, you can't just call the Arabs Arabs, and specifically in Israel, <laughs> because uh, we're dealing with religion, and there are huge differences between different communities in terms of involvement in the Israeli society, serving in the IDF. And the Druze is a totally different topic. And they said, like, what is Druze? And, I, and then I told them. And then they said, okay, you know what, then let's focus on Muslims and Druze. And as I said, like, I'm really very interested uh, as part of the project, of course, but then I chose to focus on modernization processes uh, in terms of secularism, in terms of uh, values and uh, all the effects of of modernization on uh, religiousness and values. And yeah, it was a huge research project. We used surveys. I collected in Israel 226 surveys among uh, Druze students and 199 surveys Impressive. among Muslim students. Well, the numbers are much, much higher, but I'm, I'm relating only to the full surveys, like the complete ones. Okay. The study was conducted in two stages. So in the first stage, it was a survey. And basing on the uh, value survey, uh, value questionnaire by uh, Shalom Schwartz, uh, which was part of our survey, we uh, chose for the second part of the uh, research to interview uh, 22 Muslim students and 23 Druze students. Uh, and the interview, in the interview, I, I introduced them to a new research tool in the study of religious subjectivities uh, named the Faith Q-Sort by Professor David Wolf, who is a psychologist focusing on religious studies. And the faith Q sort is based on a research methodology named the Q methodology, uh, and in which you present the respondents with statements, and they have to sort them uh, on scales. In my case, it was to sort 101 uh, uh, statements on a scale ranging from minus 4 to plus 4, when minus 4 is the least descriptive of me, and plus 4 is the most descriptive. So they sort the um, the statements uh, in terms of how much each statement describes them, and this, the statements relate to different uh, worldviews, like uh, believes in a divine being who who is a feminine or something like stuff like that. Like it relates to many uh, kinds of uh, worldviews, religious worldviews generally, and um, religious involvement and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, after the sorting, I would interview my respondents. Uh, first of all, you know, have, I have these questions about how the sorting process was for them and why did they choose to put uh, certain cards in certain places. And then we would dig into their life since, uh, like, you know, early age until who they are today. And the interviews were super fascinating. But coming from psychology, all my life, I dealt with quantitative research, quantitative data. So I also had to learn qualitative methodology right now from like from the zero line. And it was fascinating to hear the interviews and to work with like, you know, with all these materials. And I enjoyed it very much, very much. And that's not the only work you're doing, right? Because I understand you're also working on COVID related research. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, my 
You're a very busy woman. <laughs> well, well, I have to mention that I have a, an ADHD. Like, I am diagnosed as a, an ADHD. And part of it is like, you know, uh, to be associative. So in the, mid, uh, in the first lockdown during March last year, I was working between 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. in the morning every day. These are my working times. Uh, because my husband had to go to work, so we, he would leave approximately like between 8 and 9. And I was with the girls all day, their Zooms, you know, playing with them, having them, doing all the work at home. And so that left me only with these hours. And since I had nothing to do, yeah, no doctorate, no writing papers for the doctor, nothing. I'm like bored. Right. I said, <laughs> hey, this is a great chance. Let's, uh, let's write... Let's make a lemonade out of the lemons. COVID-19 is a great opportunity to write a research, like to have my own baby, because although my doctorate is my baby, but still it's not like something that I initiated or I, you know, I created. So I contacted my secondary supervisor in Israel, Dr. Norik Novis Deutsch, and I told her of my thoughts, saying, hey, let's get advantage of the situation. Uh, and it's really easy, like a piece of cake, like, you know, writing a survey one or two days. And then like by social media, I would collect like thousand surveys in a week as I did with the yard. Wow. Uh, and I uh, like I have good connections on social media and and I tempted her. I, she was reluctant at the beginning, but I, I like, you know, I pushed mm -hmm. and then she joined me. And then my uh, uh, supervisor in Finland, Professor uh, Peter Nonas of the Alba Academy University, I also contacted him. And there was this doctorate student, a colleague uh, in Finland, who also having, was having similar thoughts. And then I spent uh, like five months approximately writing a survey about the uh, meanings people attribute to the COVID-19 and how this affects their sense of agency, the way they are willing to take uh, the, the, their level of uh, taking responsibility or acting against the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, we decided to have this as a longitudinal study. So this, we finished uh, data collection for the first phase in December. And nowadays I'm working on the first publication of that uh, research. Uh, and I hope like maybe very soon in a month or two, we're going to be running the first uh, um, round of data collection. So, yeah. That's very exciting. Very much. And it's super, super interesting. But uh, many times, by the way, and this is important to say that many times, like I have these uh, moments that I'm thinking, why did I do this? <laughs> like my doctorate is my priority. I should have finished the doctorate. I should not be doing anything else. I promised myself last year that I will clean my table and do just, you know, doctorate. But then I say, no, like from any opportunity, from anything that I do, just good things will come out. So, okay, I will have a certain or, you know, some delay in the, the um, submitting my final PhD dissertation to defense, but still, it's worth it. And I'm learning a lot. Right. And it's like you said, like life gave you lemons. No one plans uh, the pandemic and everything it, uh, it caused. Yes. So you couldn't have plans to work with that either. Um, and maybe this time, this particular project did work out uh, for the better. And I'm also, I was also excited to hear that both of your universities were so supportive of you doing another project. And that's one of the last questions that I wanted to ask you. 
What are the pros and cons of doing a double degree? Hmm. Well, to start with the pros, that you're getting two degrees, two PhDs, one from each university. Mm -hmm. uh, the second, and this is super important, uh, in terms of first, the second, and I will have it like ABC, that in terms of postdoctorate, I will not have, like, you know, in Israel at least, and I think generally in the world that prefer, uh, like if you're uh, seeking an academic career, they would prefer if you have uh, a postdoc uh, abroad. And at least I have this part covered because I was abroad. Right. So I'm not like obliged to uh, do a postdoc somewhere else uh, out of Israel. But I'm going to be doing this, by the way. But don't tell anyone because I haven't told my family yet about my plans. Um, so <laughs> um, okay. th this is one more thing that networking is great like and it's amazing because you experience academia abroad and you experience it here so you like you get all the lectures from both sides all the advantages of both sides like you know the privileges of going to courses here courses there see how they learn how they learn and having the networking with amazing people uh like my research group in finland is super supportive and we're like they're like my second family. Uh, also, when I relocated there, this is how it felt. Um, so this is great because you learn a lot and you, they like they introduce you to people abroad as an Israeli, you know, because Israel is not like, you know, uh, European countries uh, in terms of academia and everything. So you have lots of connections there. Um, they like create to you connections and networking. And the cons is mainly that it's really difficult because I had to submit two research proposal, one to each, and I have to complete courses according, you know, having the credit points in Haifa fulfilled, completed, mm -hmm. and also in there. Uh, and the fact, the most difficult part, is that I have four supervisors, two in each university. And this is crazy. Four? Yeah. Wow. But they're all amazing people, by the way, and I love them, and they're all supportive. But it's difficult because, you know, many times they have different opinions. Like uh, my main supervisor here, uh, Professor Maritus Johanan Eschel, he's unfamiliar with religious studies and with qualitative research. So uh, sometimes it's like, you know, I have to explain stuff more or, you know, clarify stuff. Uh, and the same, like uh, from the other side, because my um, supervisor in, in Finland, supervisors, they're less familiar with quantitative research. But uh, otherwise, uh, they're amazing people, and I love them all, and they're very supportive. Um, yeah, and well, being here and there, and the fact that this is something that makes things take more time, by the way, with all the demands from here and there, and being here and there, um, yeah. I think these are the things. The support is one of the most important things again here, I think. Yeah, very much. So uh, while not telling anyone that you might have any plans of doing a postdoc abroad, um, <laughs> my last question and the most important one of the podcast is <laughs> what are you planning to do with that? What are you going to do with the PhD? Ooh -ha. Well, um, I am seeking an academic career. That's no secret. <laughs> And I hope it will be at my home at the University of Haifa, very much. Uh, I don't know if I will be able to get it or not. But for now, I'm like, you know, going through. And of course, I'm, I'm seeking uh, the, the, to get uh, to be a professor, of course. And if it's not at the University of Haifa, somewhere else, I will be traveling to uh, uh, 
fun duck abroad, that's for sure. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to be just, you, you will be seeing me doing lots of research and teaching. I love stage. I love students. I love teaching. So this is also something in my plan. Sounds like there's plenty of plans to, uh, to pursue yeah. all within an academic career. And it also sounds with everything you've done and the extra projects and the two universities, uh, like you've got uh, all the pluses you need at the moment to get there. So I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you very much. And I'd want to finish with a few short questions to wrap up. Yeah. So the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? That is so far, right? Maybe something is still coming up. First of all, I think in terms of the, the, the topic that I'm writing on, minority studies, uh, at least at the, in the Israeli academy, and I think generally I have uh, like very interesting findings. And uh, the, like the, there's a, the literature on minority students in Israel is very scarce, specifically in religion, religious studies. Because religion is usually studied as a, like, you know, sort of a demographic or a background variable, not the major variable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so in terms of content, let's say, this will be, I think, a very important contribution because I'm digging into their uh, inner lives. And in terms of, you know, the fact that I'm a double degree, I'm already uh, contributing because uh, since I traveled to many, many conferences in the last couple of years, like between 2017 and 2020, uh, I like I traveled to many many academic conferences. So I created this uh, a presentation that I will be presenting tonight uh, for the doctorate program and school of psychological sciences here, uh, and to many other platforms very soon uh, about how to create a successful conference presentation. Okay. So like with my I'm using my experience, my faults, my own faults to teach others of how to do and how to do not. Um, yeah, in terms of a vol- volunteering lecturer, like I love, right. I love to help others. That sounds like a great contribution, just what we need. Thank you. And then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? So I will mention my parents because I believe that I became, I, I am who I am actually, uh, thanks to them, to their support. Uh, that my mother never never gave up on me or to me, like, you know, in terms of, I you must do it. And I was uh, angry many times, but now I understand that this was for my uh, good. And uh, third person, he passed away. His name was uh, Dr. Majdi Abultef. Uh, he's a fam- friend of the family who all the time believed in me, supported me, and always said that you will reach very, very far. And uh, his words are always, always in my mind. So, and I'm going to be dedicating my PhD to him and to my parents as well. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that with us. Thank you. On a lighter note, my very last question is, how do you relax after a day of hard work? Hmm. Uh, I used to read. Now, no. Because if I hold a book, <laughs> I feel like this, this, you know, inner voice thing, you should be reading an article right now. Uh, but mainly, I every night I cannot sleep without scrolling down on the Instagram, watching videos, not of people, like videos of series that I don't know, that I'm not following, or interesting stuff. So this is the, my five minutes before uh, falling into sleep. Into sleep. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we all need to just 
turn our minds off a little bit, right? And then watch some videos that are not related to anything else that we're doing. Um, for me, that works too. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Sausan, for sharing your story with us. It has been very inspiring, I have to say. And there's also special thanks for our audience for listening to another episode. And I'd like to remind everyone to check out our social media accounts with the handle at what to do with that with the number two. And also our YouTube channel for more tips and advice. See you there. Thank you. Welcome. So, Mulan, I can't get over that. It's such a beautiful name and such a beautiful idea, too. Yeah. What other movies do they watch, though? Frozen is kind of supposed to be a girl power movie, right? Because there's no prince who saves them. Like, they, the girls do everything themselves. Yeah, well, yes. Although my, like, uh, Julian grew up into Frozen. But then now she hates it because, like, everywhere there's Frozen. Um, but, yeah, it's funny. Um, but no, Frozen, like, they're still, like, you know, they're looking beautiful princesses. No, prin girls are not princesses. They're not supposed to be princesses. You know, you shouldn't just look blonde and beautiful. No, you know, like, I'm against this. I don't like this, right. this kind of stereotypes. No, like, uh, I also, like, you know, uh, Elsa and Anna are very beautiful and they're white and they're like, you know, skinny. Well, um, Julian actually was raised, uh, I, I like mm -hmm. the only thing that she watched until the age of four or five was Dora. I don't know if you know Dora, the series, Dora, like the movie Dora. Yes. Yeah. So she's like, the explorer. Yeah, Dora, exactly. The explorer. Like, because she's like, you know, she's not that thin, uh, girl, not blonde, uh, not very fancy looking princess. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you know, interacting with her environment and making a change. Uh, and likewise is Mulan. She's not like the most beautiful girl. And she's an explorer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 